If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and while you're turning there, or excuse me, 5, and we'll uh, finish up the chapter before we move on to chapter 6, but as you turn to chapter 5 and we pick up the last seven verses here, we live in a world that is increasingly tolerant of pretty much everything that Scripture says we as the body of Christ should not be. And one of the problems that we face in our daily lives is being what God wants us to be in a very upside-down world. The world is a mess, and it is, unfortunately, going to continue to get worse until the Lord comes. His word plainly declares that, that there will be a great falling away as we approach the very last days. And I personally believe that we are very late in the clock that is the nation Israel's time that it will finally see Messiah. And so consequently, because of that, the church's days on this earth to have an impact in the world are actually fairly limited and numbered. And whether that's another week, another month, another year, another decade, I can't tell you, but I know this, the world is infinitely worse today than it was when I was born as far as a tolerance for the things that God hates. And because of that, the problem that was addressed by the Apostle Paul as he began what we call chapter 5 is very much confronting us in the church today. You see, it's one thing to tolerate sin in the world. And the Apostle Paul is going to actually deal with that tonight, that he's not really talking about us withdrawing from worldly people. They need Jesus. We need to be around sinners because you need to share the gospel with people that don't know the Lord. Amen? But we should not be tolerating sin in the church. And so he now begins this incredible handful of verses where he deals with a church that was tolerant of sin. Would you pray with me and we'll dig into the word in chapter 5 and verse 6. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and kind and merciful and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, because we are your children of grace, our lives are supposed to reflect grace-filled living. And we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to deal with sin decisively. Lord, that we wouldn't tolerate it. We wouldn't put up with it. Lord, we would hate it as much as you hate it. And Lord, when there's no repentance, we pray that you'd help us to never stain your name by tolerating that which you hate. Lord, make us doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, we don't want to self-deceive. And so bless us tonight as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Part two here of dealing with sin. And as I opened this two-part message last week, this, I believe, is the central issue why the church has very little moral authority in the world today. The reason that the church itself has lost its savor, the reason that 
we are not the salt and the light that we're supposed to be is because there's little difference often between the way the church conducts itself and the way the world conducts itself. And while I don't intend to beat anyone tonight, I do believe that it is extremely important that as we look at this passage that we take it for what it says. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, your glorying is not good. Now, put that into perspective. He's condemned this sin to where a man has his father's wife. There's immorality in the church, and now look what he's saying about the church. They are literally glorying in the sin. They're actually saying, look how tolerant we are. Now, I don't know whether this man was a large giver. Maybe he could play lead guitar really well. Perhaps he could, you know, drive a herd of goats across a desert land and get them there alive. I do not know why one would think that the church would be glorying in the sin that we know is being described here, but the church was actually glorying in the fact that they were putting up with something that God says was an abomination. And so it is that context to which we now look at the rest of this chapter. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's saying, are, are you not aware that a small amount of yeast put into any amount of dough will cause the entire batch of dough to rise? Do you, do you not know if you put a little poison into a whole lot of anything that everything will be poisoned? Do you not understand that if you put a bad ingredient into something that's good, the whole thing will become bad? Do you not know that one rotten apple will spoil the whole barrel? You see, it's easy to kind of look at this and say, well, we'd never let that happen. And here's why. Because we do not see sin the way God sees sin. There is a tremendous moral failing that's been described in the first part of this chapter. That one's obvious. But when God begins to deal with sin, which we will get to in chapter 6, he puts in things like bitterness, malice, anger, hatred, vanity. He puts in all kinds of, like lying. And he says, do you not know but those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying those are the marks of someone who's not even a believer. But the church was glorying in the fact that they were tolerating something that God hated. And the reason this is so important to us in our day and time is church after church, denomination after denomination is caving in to one really major issue, actually three of them, but certainly the issue of homosexuality. God's word is very clear on the issue. And yet the church is saying, well, we need to change the way we view this because we now understand from a different perspective that homosexuals are actually born that way. 
when in fact there's zero medical evidence that that's true. But if you speak long enough and loud enough about a purported truth and you get people to believe it, then eventually the church goes, well, we can't be unloving. And so they begin to confuse being unloving with being godly, righteous, holy. And before you know it, all of a sudden we're telling God what he does and does not accept from us, his creation. And so this word speaks to us today on several issues. Another would be abortion. The taking of innocent life simply because it's inconvenient. Because you didn't intend. Uh, That man had no intention of supporting that child that he's about to bring into this world. So he encourages that woman to terminate that pregnancy. You see, God looks at that as the sin of immorality. Specifically, the sin of fornication. And then you add to it the sin of the murder, the death of an innocent child. That's the way God sees it. But there are people who profess to be Christians who say, well, you know, it's an economic disadvantage for that child to be born to that mother because she's not ready to be a mom. When God is actually saying, I love that baby. You may have not wanted it, but I'm the author of life. And you, my dear children, don't have the right to destroy what I have created. You see, this is where the church needs to take God's perspective on sin. Because the world is paying a huge price for the church's failure to deal with sin in its own ranks. And therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. You see, when you accepted the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, when you believed in him who was able to redeem you to the uttermost, when you gave your life to Jesus, you became an unleavened lump. You accepted the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. You allowed Christ to become your Passover. And so he's drawn allusion back to the Old Testament sacrifice, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And why is that important to us in our day and time? Paul is writing to a church that wanted to ignore the problem. Paul is writing to a church that was willing to just wave their hand over it and allow a horrible sin to exist right in the midst of the church. And before I get any further, he wasn't talking about somebody who had one more beer than they should have had. He was not talking about somebody who uttered a couple of vile words. He was not talking about pulling out a sin sniffer and going around and see if you can find somebody who's done something wrong today. He was not talking about going around the church going, demon, demon, who's got the demon? That woman over there, she's got the spirit of Jezebel. I can see it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about clear, unrepented sin. 
He's saying this person will not give this up. That is the type of thing that the church can't tolerate. And we need to get this right. Because if we're going to have a voice in our world, we have to act the way God wants us to act. We need to be what God wants us to be. Can you imagine? And I want to help you. I believe I can maybe help some of you understand this a little clearer. I want to play a little mind game with you. I want to be a little metaphoric, if you'll allow me. Imagine, take yourself back in time 2,000 years. And you were in Pilate's courtyard. And you were with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And you are not married. And you're watching the whole thing. And while Jesus is being falsely accused, you need to run away so that you can be intimate with each other. We'll be back in a minute. And then while he's being nailed to the cross, you can start bragging about it with an earshot. Oh man, that was the best ever. While Jesus is being nailed to the cross. I know it's wrong, but boy, was it good. Can you imagine? There's not a person in this room that would ever think of doing such a thing. And yet, when we knowingly sin, we are crucifying again the Son of God. And now imagine that the church leadership will not do anything about it. It's okay. We don't mind if you crucify again the Son of God. As long as it fits into these categories, and as long as that person is good at something that benefits the church, we'll tolerate it. That is why I said we need to have God's view of this. We need to understand it from his perspective. And to to that end, we get some lessons from Passover. You see, he's referring back, the apostle is, is pointing us to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed, the reason the lamb shank bone that's on the Seder plate is unbroken is that that lamb was perfectly innocent. It was an unblemished lamb. It had done nothing wrong. Its innocent blood was shed so that the Israelites could live. The reason that they didn't have time was to to put leaven in their bread. The bread needed to remain unleavened. Not only was it unleavened, they went through the entire house and cleared out all the leaven if they could find any. Because they were going to be passed over. Their sins were going to be dealt with by the blood of the innocent lamb. It was a serious, serious thing. 
And sin in the life of believers is a serious thing. It's not trivial. And so Christians shouldn't have anything to do with leaven. We shouldn't have anything to do with the old yeast. It should bother us. We should be just like the Jews at Passover going through our homes saying if there's any leaven, if something's been hidden in the closet, I want to find it and it needs to go. You see, we need to have that kind of view today. And again, this is not legalism. This is the righteousness of Christ saying this is what the Lord wants from his people whom have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. This is who we are. I identify with Jesus. When I tell somebody I'm a Christian, I'm saying I believe that Christ's sacrifice was for me personally. And I would never want another nail driven into either of his hands. Not one more stripe to his back, not one more thorn pressed into his brow. I would never want to add to the torture that happened to him when his innocent life was shed for me. So I hate sin. I don't hate people. I hate sin. It destroys. It has always destroyed. It continues to destroy. And the sin of malice destroys people. The sin of hatred destroys people for whom Christ died. And so Paul's saying here, look, you've got to go after the leaven. If you don't want to be in slavery in Egypt, you have to go after the leaven. You see, because here's the deal. The Passover meal was a family affair. The whole family participated in it. And the whole family was declared clean. And if there was any leaven in the whole house, the whole family was tarnished by it. It wasn't just the person who found it. It wasn't the person who planted it. It was the whole family that suffered. And when we find sin in our family, the whole family suffers. I've sat with moms that have suffered because of children. I've sat with husbands that have suffered because of wives. I've sat with wives that have suffered because of husbands. I have sat with kids that have suffered for parents and parents that have suffered for children. Any time there is sin in a Christian's life, in a Christian home, or in a Christian church where people name the name of Christ, the sin is not isolated to the person. It affects the whole body. Now, it may not affect the whole body universally the way it does the person, but sin kills. Leaven leavens the whole lump. And while I have an individual role, and so do you, what I do will affect you. One of the great tragedies of the church is when a pastor falls into some kind of sin, the whole church sometimes is devastated by that. I have watched and talked with people, person after person, that have walked away from the Lord because their faith has been crushed because of what has happened through the fall of someone who professed that they loved the Lord and yet just fell into gross sin. 
Sin is a serious matter in the church. We must deal decisively with it. That's why he says, Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And any time you see the word truth in Scripture, you can immediately link it to the truth of the Word of God. The sincerity is the heart with which we believe the truth. The truth is the word. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what's been paid for our our salvation is Jesus gave his life that we might, one of the things that occurs, be people of truth. That's why it's so important for us to live lives of truth. In that sense, we need to bake some really good bread, amen? Our, our lives should, should be the aroma of Christ. And when we find things that are wrong, though God's grace is absolutely sufficient, His mercies are new every morning, we cannot simply ignore the obvious. I deal time after time with people who will look me right in the eye and say, I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't act that way. I know I should stay married to my wife. I shouldn't leave my husband. I know I shouldn't be sleeping with this girl. I I know I shouldn't be drinking. I know I shouldn't be smoking dope. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But. Just leave the but out of it and just stick with I know and then do it. Amen? That's what God wants us to do because what happens is that sin comes into the church, it affects the whole church, and then what happens is those young believers go, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has been going to that church for 10 years, and, you know, he he occasionally has me over, and we, we smoke a little weed together. We don't get that stoned. We're only lightly buzzed. And by the way, this happened last week here in this church. This church. Not that big a deal. Wasn't that big a deal until that young man got in a car accident coming home from that little affair. A little more buzzed than he thought. That's sin in the church. Shame's the name of the Lord. We don't want the sin destroying the, in, destroying the individual believer. We certainly don't want it destroying God's church. Romans 12, 2 says this. I love the New Living Translation. Do not copy the behavior and the customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will know what God wants you to do. And you will know how good and pleasing the perfect will really is. Man. That's the way we're supposed to live our lives. I was going over my notes this afternoon. I just started writing things down in the margin. Before I knew it, I had new notes in my notes. You see, sometimes we think that 
sin is the same in both places. But God looks at sin, though he has exactly the same standard. Listen to me very carefully. He has the exact same standard for the believer as he has for the unbeliever. But someone who does not know the Lord is not yet fully accountable for the way they understand the Word of God. God expects the church to know what it is to be a believer. And so when God looks at people who don't know the Lord and they're engaged in all kinds of things, it's because their minds are carnal and they do not know the things of God. To them it seems perfectly normal, even okay. And probably most of you can remember when you did not know the Lord. And you think back, well, I kind of didn't really even realize that was wrong. The standard was there. It wasn't different. But because you did not know it, the carnal mind could not know it. You kind of felt pretty good. But then all of a sudden you come to faith in Christ. And here's one of the things that happens. Your mind starts getting transformed. It becomes renewed. You all of a sudden understand, you know, God's not okay with this. That's supposed to be a key to us that we stop doing those things and we deal decisively with them. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to have a fundamentally sound biblical doctrine. I talk to to people all the time, well, I can't believe they do that. Really? I can I'm surprised sometimes they don't do worse. But what really gets me is what goes on in the church. I expect people who don't know the Lord to do all kinds of crazy, silly things. I know because I know I did. But once you know the Lord, we have a different set of standards that we live by. And they're God's. Before I met the Lord, my standards were, well, you know, I I think that's okay. I believe that's morally correct. There's a lot of very moral people who don't know the Lord, by the way. But there are a lot of immoral people who do know the Lord, and that is the shame. That's the problem. Because then God can't point at us and say, that's my son, that's my daughter. Because we have shamed his name. And he wants to be able to do that. He wants to point people to you. He wants to use you as a living piece of the gospel. He wants you to be a living stone to that end. Notice verses 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral person, and we do not know which epistle this is. There's a couple of writings that are attributed to Paul that we do not have canonized in Scripture. We believe that it is likely one of those, often referred to as the lost letter. Maybe it was a third letter to the church at Corinth. We're not certain, but the fact that Paul says it is enough for us to believe that, in fact, that letter was written and that he had told them previously And notice what he says in verse 10, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You realize what he's saying there. It's like one of the reasons I've left you here is so that you can minister to people who don't know me yet. 
That's why I despise the whole concept of the Christian cult to where we just all go live on a mountaintop someplace away from everyone who might possibly ever sin and we have our own little compound with walls around it and then we won't ever see anyone sinning. The only problem is the sins inside of us. You see, we're actually supposed to be in the world. That's exactly what Paul is saying. God's got no problem with you being around people who don't know him who are sinners. Who are actively engaged in sin. Now be careful before you add something to what I just said. I did not say that you're supposed to join them in sinning. I did not say it's okay for you to do what they're doing. But what I did say, because that's what your Bible says, is you're actually supposed to be around people who sin. Because you have the answer. You know the truth, and that truth can set them free. If we withdraw ourselves from everyone who is actively engaged in sin, who's in the world, who does not know Jesus, then they will not hear the gospel. The chief way the gospel gets spread is by you telling someone about the Lord Jesus. And so he's not saying, look, I want you to join a little Christian commune and move on a mountaintop and run away from everything. Move to Montana, build a bomb shelter. No, you need to be around those people. Don't do what they do and stand for Christ and be bold about your faith. But it is perfectly okay with God for you to be around people who are using language that you don't use. Did you hear what I just said? I didn't say you use it, and I didn't say you encourage them to use it. But you're probably going to hear some things in this world that you wouldn't say and don't want to hear. Notice what I also did not say. That you in the privacy of your own home should do anything that you want because, well, you know, you're helping people who are lost make a living. Didn't say that either. But what I am saying is when you hang around with people and you go someplace, I, and I'll give you an example. I had a young man come up to me. I can't believe you're going to a Dodger game with the church. And here was what he said to me. You know, they drink beer. And they cuss. They yell profanities. I said, yep, they sure do. And when they see about 100 people praising Jesus, at least we're going to have the section that actually gives Jesus a good reputation. What if every Christian took up that young man's advice and we withdrew from absolutely everything so that the gospel went nowhere except where we already have it? God help us. We'll never fulfill the great commission with the great omission. Amen? If the church is missing, the church is missing. We have been called to be salt and light. Go be salt and light. Don't join in what they're doing. So what's God getting at here? Again, the New Living Translation actually gives us a little insight. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about the unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. Or people who are greedy or swindlers. Because they don't know any better. You'd have to leave the world to avoid people like that. What I meant was, do not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, yet indulges in sexual sin. Who is greedy. Worships idols. It's abusive. Drunkard or swindler. 
don't even eat with somebody like that. You see, because then what happens is this little Christian club gets confused with the real Jesus. And all of a sudden there's leaven all throughout the club. And while we're over there saying, well, I'm not going to go to a ball game because they cuss. And again, I don't like the language either. And I'm not really fond of having beer spilled down my back. But the example is a perfect one. You start talking about, the, well, where are you guys from? You see that sign? You see the jumbotron? You see where it says Calvary Chapel, South Bay? Yeah, we love Jesus and the Dodgers. I didn't know Christians could go to baseball games. Yeah, a lot of people think that. You mean you can go to ball games and be a Christian? Yep. It's an open door. But they better not come back here to the church and find us here in the sanctuary drinking beer and cussing. Amen? That's the difference. They had to come in here and find holiness and righteousness. And people whose minds are stayed in peace because they're stayed on him. It's a passage that I, I, just, I just think is so perfect. It's the end of Romans chapter 1, if you're with us, when we studied at verse 28. And Paul's been talking about unbelievers. And he said, even they that did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And he, he talks about them being filled with unrighteousness and sexual immorality and covetousness and, mal- and maliciousness and envy and strife and deceit, evil-minded, their, their, worship, their whispers and backbiters and haters of God. And he lists all these things. And at the end of Romans chapter 1, he says something that every person in this room ought to remember when you're thinking about how you live your life before the world. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, look, I knew the righteous judgment of God. That's why I gave my life to Christ. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. And I knew that Jesus alone could save me. I knew the righteous judgment of God. So me as a believer, I knew I was headed for trouble eternally. And so I yielded myself to the Lord. And I said, yes, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross so that I could be saved, so I could have eternal life. I said yes to that, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice, practice such things are deserving of death. That's a truth everyone in this room who loves Jesus knows. I still know that my unrighteousness is deserving of death. The good news is I have the grace of God and the mercy of God because of the blood of Christ. I still know these things, but notice what he says. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. He's saying it is so contradictory for us to know the righteousness of God and have received the penalty not on ourselves, but given the penalty to Christ and saying, you go ahead and die for my sins, Jesus, but I want to keep them. And then if that weren't bad enough, not just do it ourselves, but tell people their sin's okay. 
It is that group that that Jesus is speaking to through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's saying to them, it ought not be so. The church has to have a holy standard. And I know this is tough to hear, I'm sure. And I realize most of you in this room are mature and probably understand this fairly well. But we need to make sure that other people understand it because we pass along a spiritual heritage. We're saying to everyone else, look, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me be an example of righteousness. Let me show you how good the grace of God is. I am transformed and renewed, and I'm a different man than I used to be. You see, there should be a tangible difference that people can see. There should not be sin in the church. And so to that end, people always say, well, how do we know? Well, you judge sin correctly. Ultimately, you need to have the proper set of standards to recognize these things. Because he he judges us differently. He holds us accountable to what we know. We have different understanding than people who don't know the Lord. There's so many things that we look at. And this time of year when we get near elections, I always have people ask, well, who should I vote for? Vote for the person whose values closest represent biblical values. It's really simple. It doesn't matter whether there's a D or an R or an I after their name. It matters that they have a biblical morality and a biblical worldview as best as you possibly can. That's how we determine all things. It is Christ first and everything else underneath Jesus. For we who love the Lord. So then there's just one standard. And I don't have to justify why I'm putting up with sin, like the sin of abortion. You understand what I'm saying? There shouldn't be a person in here who loves the Lord, who's okay with the death of an unborn child. If you hold that view, I believe, according to the Bible, you have an unbiblical view. So that's real simple. You you hold God's view. God's view on these things. You don't hold the world's view. You go to Exodus 21, you read it. Ooh. Ouch. That person was put to death because of the child that was in the womb of the mother. You have God's opinion on gay marriage. We don't have the world's opinion. We have God's opinion. And so the church holds the Lord's opinion above everyone else's opinion. We're not tolerant of those things. It is not loving to tolerate that which God hates. You are not loving somebody by allowing them to do something that could possibly put their eternal destiny in harm's way. That's not loving. It is tolerant. That's the problem the church at Corinth had. You have to have the proper set of standards. 
And to me, it's interesting, and I don't know whether you see this, but this time of year, it's always funny how people who never take out their Bible and never go to church, never spend a moment of time with the Lord, all of a sudden become biblical authorities about judging or some form of scriptural quotation. It's getting to be nouveau to even put pieces of Scripture into political speeches. And God's not put off and, and looking at that going, wow, that's really a guy's automatically a Christian because they quoted the words of Jesus. You're judging how we live our lives. And people often misquote Matthew chapter 7 when it says judge not, that they stop right there. Judge not. Judge not. You need to read the rest of that in context. That you not be judged. That with the judgment with which you judge, you will be judged. In other words, if you have godly judgment, you'll be judged by godly judgment. If you have ungodly judgment, you'll be judged by ungodly judgment. And the measure with which you measure it out, it will be measured back to you. It doesn't say don't judge. It says don't judge wrongly. Don't judge improperly. Don't look at things and call them good when they're evil, and don't look at things and call them evil when they're good. Is basically what Jesus was saying. He's saying you better have the right judgment. Then he goes on to help us redefine it. He says, look, if you've got a plank in your own eye, you might want to move that before you try and get the speck out of your brother's. You see, we're to have the right kind of judgment. And that takes determination. It takes discipline. It, it means that we have to do these things the right way. And so when I deal with people who claim to be Christians and they have an unbiblical view on something, I take them to the Word of God. I don't sit around and debate whether it's okay because somebody in the news media said it was okay. I take them to the Word of God and say, what does God say about it? And if God speaks on that situation, that, that particular habit, that thing that they're dealing with, then that is my opinion. And I want to strongly encourage you to take up exactly the same example. Just take out your Bible. If your Bible speaks to an issue, that's what you think about it. And here's the good news. Then you have the Lord as your defense. You're not going to be trying to defend your position someplace later because you believe some new scientific evidence that man just has a propensity to be sexually immoral. Which is, by the way, exactly what's being taught in, your school, in the schools today. That man has a high propensity to immorality. And actually, not even to, we're not even supposed to be monogamous is the new thing. I'm pretty sure your Bible doesn't say that. So when some scientist comes and says, well, we've got new evidence. No, you don't. That's the same thing that Satan's been telling mankind since day one. That's not new evidence. That's old lies is what that is. It's the same old lies. We have to have the right kind of judgment. We have to have the right heart behind it, which is restoration. Restoration. 
And so the Apostle Paul, as he finishes this chapter, he says, I wrote to you not to keep company with those who are sexually immoral. But in verse 11, he goes on to say, now I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness or, or an adulterer or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? He says, look, it's, it's not, you, you can't hold a righteous standard of judgments against somebody who does not know the Lord. They don't know. You have to share the gospel first. You got you to get to step one before you get to step ten. It's basically what he's saying. But those who are on the outside, God judges. And therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, I admit readily, quickly, completely, and thoroughly, this is a tough passage of Scripture. And the reason I taught it the way I did is you all, we as the church, ought to be able to say to the world, come watch what we do. Come look how we live our lives. Come examine my voting record. Come see what I do when I'm on vacation. I can tell you what you're not going to find. You're not going to find Pastor Jeff and Connie 5,000 miles from here in a bar. You aren't going to find it. We're going to be the same people here as we are there. That's what the whole church needs to do. Because when there's a difference, when we're one thing here and we're something else out there and the world finds out about it, what do they do? They seize on it. They begin to say, well, why would I want to be one of them? Look how hypocritical they are. Oh, from the pulpit, it's like this, but when you follow him when he has dinner. No, honestly, that's actually San Pellegrino sparkling water. It might have a lime in it. If you'd like to taste it, you're welcome to. You see, when we do what God tells us to do and we deal with our own house and we keep our own house clean, then we can invite people over to our house. And they can look throughout our house and here's what they're going to find. No leaven. Zero leaven. And then we don't have to worry about that leaven because it isn't there leavening the whole lump. And so throughout the church... There's practical holiness. May not be perfection. Won't be while we're on this earth. But we're going to try really, really, really hard. And when we find something that needs to be dealt with, we deal with it. We call it what it is. We say, sorry, brother, sister. If you won't give that up, I, I, can't, I can't fellowship with you. If you won't flee that, we, we, we can't commune one with another. And here's what happens. That person all of a sudden says, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to trade that. Maybe I ought to think about giving that habit up. Maybe they're going to long for that wonderful, sweet fellowship that we have. 
But if we just make the church like the world, they don't even need to come to church because they can get the world in the world. Deal decisively with sin. Whether it's in your life, your family, wherever you see it, don't go sniffing around trying to hunt it out. But when you find it, deal with it and glorify God in your own life. And let's do that in the church. Don't scorn or withdraw from unbelievers and then be tolerant of believers who sin. Keep the same standard. When we witness to people, we ought to be able to say, follow me. I'll do my best to show you Jesus. Amen? Would you stand? Let's pray together. I'm going to bring the pastors up. Sir Alex coming back up with the team. We're going to close in a worship song. Maybe you're here tonight and and again, I no intention of beating anyone up, but this is a strong passage, and I think we need to be strong. When the word is strong, we need to be strong. And so take it. If you're already walking that way, show somebody else how to get there. If you've got an issue, get it squared away. God's grace is sufficient for you, for me, for us. Maybe you've messed up. His mercy is brand spanking new. It's not just tomorrow morning, it's right now. He is willing to save you. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you came in and you've never committed your life to Christ. And you've been walking in darkness. The light bulb just went on. Come, be prayed for, be prayed with. Receive Christ. He wants to know you personally. Deliver you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. Lord, thank you you're kind, that you're a gentle, good shepherd. And Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone who feels like maybe they got hit with the rod, Lord, it's only because you love us. And you correct us when you love us. And so, God, we ask that you would move in our midst to make us a holy people. Lord, we cannot cry out to you to heal our nation if we will not turn the qualifier there in First Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wickedness, then I will hear, then I will heal their land. So, Lord, help us to be a pure bride, ready for your return at any moment. No hidden sin, nothing in the closet, a website on our computer, nothing, Lord, nothing. We don't want to do a thing to shame you. And so help us to deal decisively when we find sin. In Jesus' name, amen.